Hi everyone, welcome to Mobile DevOps is a Thing, a podcast by Bitrise showcasing mobile developers from all around the world. This episode will focus on app performance monitoring, how to build great mobile apps for sports fans, and we'll also discuss some new technologies like augmented reality or app clips for iOS. My name is Nora Basie, and I'm here today with Colin Hemmings, product manager of Trace, Bitrise's APM solution. Hey, Colin. Hey, how are you doing? Lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. And our special guest today is Rasmus Larsson, Product Strategy Director at Pulselight from London. Hey, Rasmus. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining. We're really excited to get started. Let's kick things off. First of all, what's something that we should know about you? What do you do and what does Pulselight do? Well, I'll give you the, hopefully, as, as short of an introduction as possible. I have a tendency to go off on tangency in there, but I'm more or less an app developer. I've been building apps for the last 10 years or so. Started in the media industry and then joined Pulse Live in 2013 to start the mobile team here. So I, I headed up the mobile team for, for about six years or so, built a team of about 30 native app developers, and then recently shifted over to more of a product role in, in my role as a product strategy director. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm focusing a little bit more on these days is the strategy side of things. But my, my heart is very much in the technology side of things, and especially native applications is kind of where I got started. Awesome. Thank you. So I thought that just to give a bit of an overview of you, Colin, why you're here and what Trace is, could you tell us a few words about that? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Colin. I'm the uh, product manager on the Trace product that we're working on here at Bitrise. We're working on it a little while now. The idea behind Trace is to provide a monitoring APM solution focused on mobile applications and the unique set of challenges and different metrics and things that mobile app developers and mobile app development teams need to track about their application to understand how they're performing from the end user's perspective. Obviously, mobile apps are deployed on a a vast array of different device types and kind of platform permutations and understanding what it's like for all of your users and not just, you know, looking at the average or the median user experience. Is, is quite important. So that's the that's where we're looking to kind of solve that problem for mobile app developers is to give that insight to tell their app performance. Awesome, thank you. Rasmus, the listeners might not know what exactly Pulse Live does. You have a really impressive list of sports federations and leagues as clients. Can you tell us a bit about that and what kind of apps you're building for them and what technologies you're using? Sure. So Pulse Live, we, we specialize in the, the sports industry. Um, the way I usually kind of explain how we fit in is that most sports organizations, be that clubs, federations, tournament managers, uh, don't really have the capabilities of building their own digital products. So that's kind of where we come in. We become the, the official partners to these organizations and build any digital products that they need, be that websites, applications, backend services, anything that is needed. There are some edge cases uh, or, or exceptions where there are certain federations who do some of this stuff themselves, but generally they don't, they want to focus on the, the sports side of things. And that is something, and it's true that has grown quite a bit over the last 10 to 15 years. Earlier on, the, the relationship with fans was very much with the broadcasters. So people watched kind of matches and stuff by broadcasters. And that was kind of the direct interaction with a lot of these sports. But as time goes on, people or, or these organizations have understood the value of having direct communication with their fans and, and building products that engage directly with them. 
And that is where kind of the, the whole digital sports industry has grown quite a bit and, and, and how we have specialized in building these engagement products for these, these organizations. So it's mainly, as I said, apps, websites, and, and other digital products that provide or give users the ability to follow the sports, the tournaments, the clubs, the players in any other way. And it's a really exciting place to be because sports can incorporate so many different elements of, of building, uh, of echoes into building applications. It's everything from content to video to news to, to live, live streaming, uh, and live streaming data. Um, and it kind of anything you can think about of uh, to put in an application kind of goes into a sport application at some stage. So being able to, to kind of build those types of products for a lot of uh, fairly high, high or well-known clients, uh, is, is quite a privilege. And it kind of provides a lot of challenges in many ways, but it's definitely, I, I couldn't think of myself doing anything else at this stage. So um, can you name a few of your biggest clients? Sure. Some of them are, are a little bit kind of hesitant about kind of being too open about stuff, but I can name a few. We, we work with the Premier League. We work with uh, AFL down in Australia. We work with the WTA in, in, in the US and, and a handful of other ones. You can actually look at our websites to, to kind of see a, a decent list of them. But generally, a lot of our clients have multiple millions of, of fans following their sports around the world, which comes with, as I said, a lot of interesting challenges. So, yeah, there are, are many, many that I could talk through, um, but some of them are, are quite precious about their brands in many ways. So I can't go too specific on, on some of them. Yeah, it makes sense. These are some really big names. I was wondering, when it comes to mobile apps for sports fans, do you think that they have a different set of expectations about what they want from an app? So, for example, some of the things that might come to mind are they want like an immersive experience, want to be kept up to date at all times and want live coverage and things like that. Is there anything that makes your development process different to address these things? There are many aspects of, of kind of the ability to follow these sports that adds a lot of challenges because again, it's combined so many different elements and I can, I'm happy to kind of go into some of that detail as part of the kind of the monitoring side of things. But when it comes to users themselves, we kind of split them into, it's, it's simplifying a little bit, but you have the, the 20% kind of sit forward, kind of lean forward use space. And then you have the, the 80% who are more kind of sit lean back or kind of needing things to or wanting things to be curated or fed to them. So a lot of what we do is try to build engagement features and products that cater to both of, of these categories. So building experiences that are both for the users who just want to sit there and get things kind of told to them so that they they kind of just want to keep be kept up to date with stuff. But then they're also the ones who want to dig in really deep into stats, kind of information, engage and, and communicate and share and all of these elements as well. And trying to build one single product that caters to both of those elements is a challenge both from a, a kind of an experience design perspective, but also from a technical perspective of, of being able to cater to all of those elements at the same time becomes quite a challenge. And especially on mobile devices where screen real estate and all of these kind of things are are quite limited. So that's where you work a lot with anything from good kind of UX and design, but also personalization and targeting and, and, and all of these elements uh, are, are core to, to creating those types of experiences. You have, um, do you have specific strategies in place for trying to make sure you deliver and, and, and obviously stay on top of those user experiences and making sure you're delivering a, a product that customers love and um, that they rate highly? Yes, and, and it's kind of one of the reasons we, we have chosen, like a lot of what we do could theoretically be done in, in more, more or less any industry, but we've chosen to stick to sports so that we can specialize in those specific things. And a lot of that comes down to 
understanding the, the users. So getting a really good understanding of the sport, how their fans work, what they're looking for, what interests them, what level of, of kind of detail is kind of more interesting than others, making sure that you provide the right level of, uh, again, of, of detail and, and the ability to dig into to more information. So we, we do a lot of research. We have a whole internal research team that do communicate, talking to a lot of fans and, and kind of doing surveys and, and direct interviews and all of these kind of things to get a sense of what people are actually looking for before we start building anything in the first place. And then throughout the build, there's a lot of feedback management, a lot of kind of testing things out on, on fans and, and all of this. And then throughout the, the, the live, kind of any products being live, because we, like anybody else, everything we build is almost a software as a service these days. Nothing is just built and forgotten about. It's continuously kind of adapted and, 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 and enhanced, we monitor constantly the, the feedback and the usage of, of our products to make sure that we are always uh, aware of, of kind of where things can be better and, and, and where we need to, to put extra focus. Are there specific ways that you track like that feedback? Because obviously you have like, different types of customers. You've got your clients and then there's like the end users of the, the devices as well. Are there ways that you track that? There's lots of data there to keep on top of that. Yeah, there's a lot of, of kind of analytics that we, we make use of to, to kind of track what is being used and what is not being used and, and kind of getting information there. That is then combined with a certain level of interviewing because you can make assumptions based on the analytics and, and all of this kind of stuff. But then if you actually go talk to, to fans and try to get answers of why these are happening, so the analytics will help you point in the direction of going, oh, people are kind of not using this feature or they really like this feature. And we can make assumptions around that, but you don't really know for sure until you've had the discussions with fans and kind of sort of using all of these elements. So again, that's where research comes in to help do that but then obviously we, we track a lot of reviews and ratings and, and and all of these elements together with more technical elements when it comes to monitoring such as crash monitoring and, and other elements of uh health uh, product health in many ways so there's it's it's there's no kind of one tool it's combining all of them to make sure that you're listening to users and understanding them you're monitoring what people are actually doing and how they're doing it uh, which you can kind of learn from and make assumptions from and then it's also all the technical elements of, of tracking this these products as well so that seems like a, obviously a lot of a lot of pressure um, for your um, apps is that you've got these large clients, there's a lot of users, huge amount of data, and it also has to be live in real time. Are there certain processes or what are your practices you have for you know, pre-production um, and, and taking these live to ensure that quality and, and making sure that you're delivering a great experience? So we try to make sure that we go every, everything goes through proper kind of everything from, from QA to UAT to any form of testing that we can do. The challenge is always that we want to obviously have a, as near the production environment as possible to actually test things on. And that is always a challenge, both from a scale perspective, but also from the content in itself. Sometimes we're lucky and, and there are kind of elements that we can make use of in terms of previous tournaments or previous data or, or kind of anything stuff already exists. But the biggest challenges we have is where we integrate either with a sport that hasn't actually done anything digital before or there's no data to integrate with. And at that point, we're, we're, we're building based on documentation and, and kind of based on, on information about how things should work and how they theoretically work. But there are many unfortunate situations where you end up in a situation where the documentation does not match fully what the actual data will look like when things come through. So for me and for us, it's, it's trying to figure out how we build out test environments, tools, and, 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 and as many things as possible that actually makes it easier and easier for us to get close to a production environment for our pre-processing and our pre-testing just to make sure that we have gone through all the scenarios, all the edge cases, and all of these elements. 
And it's actually something that is getting harder year on year because you're combining more and more different features and more elements. And it used to be that it was mainly only the data that was being shown and updated in real time. But then you connect it to, to, to content, be that live blogging or streaming or, or, or polling features or engagement features. Now you have an element where, where a so-called match center, which is usually what we have as, a, as an encompassing experience that you can follow a, a game, for example, has so many different things that are connected and reliant on each other that it becomes much, much harder to, to get to those where you have everything, you feel like you've been able to test everything fully representative. So that is a lot of work where our effort and time goes into is to, to get to those where we can get, again, as close as possible to production. And, and I personally have a, a mantra going, I don't trust anything fully until I've fully seen it working in production. Until then, it is it, it might as well not have, uh, have been fully signed off in the yeah, they always say there's no place like prod. Um, and I think that's where uh, 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 an interesting area where monitoring fits in. That like if you can you know, get these things into production and and keep a track of how well they're performing in production and be able to react quickly. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of value in monitoring is. Talking about these new features and uh, new technologies. For example, I saw that one of your apps, the AFL app, has augmented reality features. Do you plan on introducing AR into your other apps or how do you see the future of AR in mobile? AR is definitely a topic that I personally could spend probably the rest of the day sitting and, and, and exploring and talking about. But And that is because I think that there's a huge amount of opportunity there. People look at me a bit weird sometimes if they've kind of used some of these these features and like, what, why is, uh, is everyone so excited about it? And from my perspective, what we see right now, what AR can do in, in today's environment is a little bit gimmicky. It's kind of cool and you can toy around with it and it does some cool stuff. But where it can go in the future in terms of when, when it moves from being something that you have to hold a phone in front of your face to kind of engage with, which is slightly awkward, it's still cool and it kind of gives value and, and kind of gives some, some entertainment factors to it. But it becomes something that is almost will be second nature to people when it's something that is just naturally there in front of you. When the whole kind of AR glasses world comes and Yes, I'm, I'm very much a, a, a believer in that future and waiting for the big players to kind of start releasing their, their AR glasses. And when we get there, it's so, for me, so easy to tell the story about that everything that you see around you, you like these days, people they take up their phone every five seconds to, to kind of look at something or find something. That when we get to the world where those glasses are there, that data is just going to be there in front of you. You don't have to pick up your phone. When you're walking down the street and you want to see what the review of that restaurant on the corner is, you just look at it and, and you have enough information there to just have that Google view pop in uh, above it kind of thing. And that's the world that we will be ending up with. And that is why for me, AR is such a, an, a, an important thing for us to invest in and to look at because we want to be ready for that future when it comes. So I'm grasping at any opportunity that I can to, to build out these features and experiment with it and build with it because at some point it is going to, it's the, the next phase. You went from TV to computers to, to mobile phones and the next natural interface from my perspective at least will definitely be the glasses at some point. It could be two, three, four, five, ten years, but it will be there at some point. And, and for us, it, it's something that we are really excited about. Yeah, it is super exciting. Well, I have to admit, I'm not a big sports fan. Mm. I only watch the Olympics, but uh, yeah, in sports, AR definitely has like huge potential. Yeah, no, you can, the, the contextual information and being able to add 
stuff on top of what you're already watching. Imagine you're watching something on TV and some, some people think that the screens will kind of be completely replaced by AR, but that's probably a little bit further away because the fidelity you can get on, on actual TVs, but you can still surround that TV with contextual information and data and stuff like that. So that's one of the things. And then you can start looking at uh, so-called volumetric video as well. And that is a very interesting feature where you actually start seeing things in 3D and you can actually like the, the, the long-term future is where you'll have a, a match or a boxing match or, or something like that actually happening on the table in front of you. So you could actually see it in the 3D, you can look at it from any angle, you can actually have a real size in front of you actually happening in your living room more or less. And those are some of the really exciting things that, that we will get to at some point. It's just a matter of time rather than much. It's interesting how AR has played out. I remember hearing a lot of buzz about it about 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think as you, as you mentioned, it was, a, it was a bit awkward having to hold your phone up and things like that. It's like you're walking through a busy street and you're holding your phone up trying to find app directions and it seemed to die off. But then, yeah, I've heard a lot of buzz of picking up again about that. And you, as you say, like with glasses and things, it becomes more of a natural experience, stuff that just fits into your everyday, obviously with more ML on phones and things like that nowadays that you can uh, think these things that just start to pop up in front of you. Do Definitely. Yeah, now my team are, are semi-tired of me shouting about all the, the AR stuff I want us to do at, at some point. Um, and I'm, I'm itching to make sure that, again, it's still probably a couple of years ago before it becomes fully mainstream, but I'm really excited about where, where it can go and what it can do. So yeah, we're trying to do as much as we can within that, that industry at this point. What about other sort of new technologies? So since WWDC, there are app clips in uh, iOS 14, for example. And we recently posted a thread on Reddit asking people if they've encountered any great app clip examples for iOS in the wild. And the vast majority of, of them said that they didn't. So why do you think, have, have you encountered any? And why do you think this is? I think app clips are really interesting. Um, obviously, a lot of <laughs> anybody on Android would have would say that this is not something new in many ways. And instant apps on Android have been around for a couple of years now, so it is not completely new. But it is a uh, obviously a very new thing for, for iOS. Personally, kind of being involved and having built a lot of applications over many years, I think one of the, the two biggest challenges to, to app clips are is both from a product perspective understand how you can carve out and what you should carve out out of a, of a product to actually make that a good app clip because you're very limited in many ways especially around size and, and, and a couple of other things when it comes to app clips but then also from a development standpoint you have to architect your your, your product to be very modular in many ways and that is where kind of a good kind of architecture is these days um but again having worked in the industry for quite a while now not everyone still builds their applications in as modular as you need to to actually be able to integrate well into an app clip, whatever feature you want to, because you have, you need to remove dependencies and limit dependencies between different modules and all of these kind of things, again, to be able to fit that within that small package that is app clips. We managed to achieve it on, on a couple of our products on, on Android with, with instant apps. Um, so we have a couple of features that we've coiled around with it, but we haven't uh, had the opportunity to do too much on the iOS side just yet. But it's still something that I'm quite excited about because, again, having one foot in product and one foot in technology, the biggest barrier that exists from my standpoint when it comes to if you're comparing to why should you do website and application, and the application is the, the, the kind of the barrier to entry is a lot higher because you have to find the application, you have to download it, you have to do all of these things while on the web, you search, you press a button, and you're on the website. 
still to this day, you can create a better experience from my standpoint. I'm a bit biased because I'm a native app developer, but you can still build from my standpoint better engagement features uh, natively. And the barrier there is getting to people to download that application in the first place. And that's where, for me, App Clips becomes a really important tool to kind of, you, you can share specific parts of, of applications and specific elements of it. And people who don't really have the application yet, they can get a taste of what that application is or, or kind of get some information uh, or just a, the kind of the, the top level experience. And then that kind of helps guide them or funnel them through to downloading the, the full experience and getting the understanding why that the application is something that they should have. So it is a challenge. And I think, again, the challenge is product, the challenge is technologies. There are certain things that need to be put in place. But I think we will see more and more going forward, people understanding the value and the importance of, of having that, that point of entry to your products. So I definitely think it's something that we're going to see a lot more of going forward. But I still think people are kind of getting their uh, their feet on the ground when it comes to understanding how to do things right to be able to achieve those those levels. Yeah, I think you touched on a a very interesting point there. It can be easy to get kind of carried away with new technology and shiny things. But obviously having that focus on what's adding value to the user and then obviously in our roles being able to take that technology, look at what's valuable to users, and then mesh those to produce a a great product is where the the skill lies. And yeah, it can be easy to get carried away and just add these things because because it's a cool, shiny new technology and they don't actually add any value. No, there's some elements of of kind of adding new technology that even from a product perspective is interesting because it can kind of get people into your product that wouldn't do it otherwise. Like people who are kind of just interested in that new technology or that information. And there, so there are, like, it's something that I had to change my view on product a couple of years ago because I was always kind of, okay, if this is not used by at least X percentage of users, then it's not really worth doing at any stage. But I also started understanding that sometimes adding stuff that is only used by a small percentage of users, if that creates a buzz and interest in, 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 uh, of the product itself and something that can showcase what can be done. And there is value in that as well. But yes, you have to be very, very careful when it comes to invest or kind of putting a lot of effort into something that, that is gimmicky or, or, or kind of not adding any actual value because, yeah, you will put your effort in the wrong place at, at some exactly. point. Yeah, there's a, a large opportunity cost around that. You're exactly. spending resources on building these things and you know, some things that may seem like they're fairly easy to add. And then, yeah. you know, they got six months, a year down the line, and you're still working on this, this thing that yeah. doesn't really add a huge amount of value. So from a Pulse Live perspective, what are some of the major challenges that you face from a, a product perspective? So I mentioned a couple of them already around kind of catering to, to different levels of fans and, and kind of what they're looking for and all of these elements. We have a couple of other interesting ones, kind of obviously working within sports, kind of sports rights and all of these elements are a big challenge. Like there's very obvious kind of, okay, if we, if we had this specific application, if we had the live stream of the match for free, then obviously we'd get millions of, of hundreds of millions of users watching it kind of thing. But that is, those rights are where a lot of these organizations make their money. So there's no chance that that, that will happen. A lot of organizations, just like I mentioned, kind of people taking more ownership of, or these organizations getting more ownership of the communication with fans in the same way clubs and, and, and tournaments are, are getting, looking to get more ownership of rights and kind of managing those themselves as well at some point and the direct consumer OTT and all of these kind of things are, are growing. But for us, it's, it's kind of the challenge there is working within the limitations that we have to build the best possible product is one of the big ones. Then, as I said, a lot of the testing elements of having all the data and everything combined is, is a huge challenge. And then also just as a company, we've grown quite a bit. We're not massive still. We're just about just over 100 people. Um, when I joined about uh, seven years ago now, we were 15, 20 people and growing as an organization and kind of keeping that quality up and having 
what is it, about 20, 30, 40 different applications on the market live at all times with a team of, of, of not a, a limited team kind of thing of, of making sure that we, we keep track of all of those things and, and the quality and, and continuing to advance what we do and keep me efficient. There are many, many different things that, that are, are kind of massive challenges when it comes to a lot of the products that we're building. Yeah, that scaling an organization is a huge challenge in keeping you know, all the teams up to date with the vision and understanding, Absolutely. you know, we talked about those user experience metrics and, and feedback. Are there specific ways that you relay that information back to the, the like the rest of the team and the organization about what your experience is, the user experience is like and, and how people are, uh, what feedback you're getting from users? Yes, there's definitely an element of, of making sure that anything that is, is kind of said and done is, is communicated as widely as possible. Because ultimately, I think the, the, when it comes to building great products, the, the one ingredient that is the most important from my perspective is care. Like if you have people who care about the product and the people using the, these products, you're always going to get a 10 times better product than trying people who are just doing something that is written on a list and, and told what to do. So the more we can make sure that everyone is involved in every single product, understands what we're trying to, what the product is trying to achieve, what the fans want, what they care about, what they don't care about, be that everything from a, kind of a, a, a junior product designer to a, a developer to a QA to a project manager. Like if the more everybody understands what is actually happening and what people care about and what they don't care about and communicating that value is is core to what we do. So a lot of my job is, is very much around kind of listening to as much as possible and communicating as much of that as possible to the teams and, and making sure they are aware and so they can make the decisions because they ultimately it's the individuals who make the, the, the day-to-day decisions and the more they understand and the more they care about what their decisions are actually leading to the better the, the end result will be so it's it's a core part of, of, of our culture and of any culture from our perspective that wants to create great products yeah that's a um, yeah touch on a good point there I think having the data available to these teams so they can also be more self-reliant as well um, whether it comes to a user experience or application performance you know these, these teams can kind of guide themselves based around a set of metrics that you're looking to improve or facing challenges at the moment and that's a point for so we've been working on trades here at Bitrise, which we um, obviously Bitrise is always focused core on building solutions for mobile app teams and mobile DevOps is a core principle behind that. And obviously we started building out monitoring as part of that DevOps lifecycle. We have tooling around testing and, and managing deployments. Uh, but obviously having a solid foundation in monitoring is important to be able to deliver software, deliver it quickly and make sure it's uh, up to a certain standard. And so we've been working on Trace to provide that insight to the users, to our users, about how their user, the end user, are experiencing the application. And it's an interesting dynamic that we found with mobile monitoring is fitting between application performance from a very technical low level side of things, you know, how long it takes apps to start up and where you've got the performance bottlenecks and that fitting in between the general user experience and user analytics. So you can see there is this problem and it's affecting this number of users or these types of users and being able to convey those pieces of information back to the, the, the user of trace so that they can then triage these problems that they've noticed or we've highlighted for them to say, okay, this is a, a significant problem. We need to address this one first. That's where we're really looking to differentiate Trace and, and provide that value because there are these unique problems that come along with mobile monitoring that we're looking to, to highlight to our users. 
From your perspective, how do you integrate monitoring into your development lifecycle and, and how does it improve your kind of continuous delivery for your apps? It's kind of at the scale of what we do things. It is a core part of, of how we track the, the health of the products that we have. When you have hundreds of, of millions of users using your products, you, you end up in a situation where very small or what looks like kind of small elements or kind of a request too many or a delay a little bit too long has a, a very big combined impact. So we make sure that that everything we do, obviously we use, the reason I'm here is because we use Bitrise for our kind of CI CD system. So we automate as much as possible when it comes to the, the deployment and, and setup of our, our products. And once they're actually live, the more we have control over and view over the health of these products via APN tools, the more we can keep track of uh, on a day-to-day basis of, of the values that we're looking at. So usually it's something that we look at the most once we've kind of pushed out any new releases to kind of have, have a track of, of what changed and if there are any negative changes as part of it. But then also we, we keep an eye on it once things have, have kind of gone live and, and been live for a bit as well. So it's, it's a part of our, it's a natural part of our day to day when it comes to, to making sure that we are on top of the health of the products that we have. Are there specific things that you look to monitor for your app, there specific, specific metrics or uh, events that are important for the stability and the, the performance of your app? I would split it up into two different areas. There's the experience side of things. So that is very much around kind of the amount of requests and the delays and the, the time it takes for these requests to happen. And it's also something that a, an APN tool helps us kind of monitor that on the multitude of kind of permutations of different devices out there. Because yes, we can spend weeks, days or years kind of testing both automated testing and, and kind of manual QA, but we will never be able to test everything on, on every single platform that is out there. So it's not until or any permutation of the platforms that are out there. Um, so it's not until things have gone out that we we have a, a full view of those things. So again, we can look at the the once it's out, we, we want to keep track of the amount of requests, the, the delays or the request times. And then also the that also connects to almost the cost side of things because again, when you have millions of, of users using these products, a couple of small kind of tweaks to, to the amount of requests and the optimizations around them can have a fairly significant impact on the monthly costs of, of running these products as well, which is extremely important for most of our clients because there is no the vast majority of sports, except for some elements of, of OTT, is very much free services. So there's no kind of with the amount of users, the costs go up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the revenue goes up in the same way. So for us to be optimized and, 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 and clear about that we're not making any, any unnecessary or excessive amount of requests and data and management, whilst making sure that everything is kept up to date, again, with live data and streaming and all these kind of things, the, the challenge between kind of managing both of those things is something that means that we need to, to monitor these things um, for our own and for our, our clients' businesses. Can you recall a, a situation of a mistake or incident or anything like that that could have been avoided if you would have had a proper monitoring tool in place? We had an incident a, a while back, which these days I'm calling the, the $200,000 mistake because it came out of nowhere. Uh, I remember packing up at the end of the day and I get a call or a conference call and I was pulled in and it was three technical directors, including myself, our managing director and the finance director and a very white-faced DevOps sitting in the call. And I was the last one in and I, I still don't, I didn't know what was going on. And someone slowly started saying that, oh, we just kind of checked our, our bills for, for last month for, for one of our clients. 
and it has increased significantly uh, and nobody knew why, like multiple, multiple times what it usually is and nobody knew why. And, and so we immediately went into detective mode and started looking at things and, and quite quickly we realized that we did had made application updates around the time that we started seeing the spikes of data because that was what the, the what we could see immediately was was the cause of, of the increased costs. So we just started digging through the code. We went through the repository and the change kind of what changes we had made and relatively quickly within a half an hour or so we found this specific line of code change that had happened. It was a very minor update that that was done. It was changing how something was displayed on one of the high traffic pages. It was just a bug fix that, that was was added and it was very routine. And I'd gone through code review, I'd gone through testing and all of this kind of stuff, but there was an edge case that only happened at specific time points and it happened to be when there was high traffic as well. It just led to these insane spikes in traffic. It, it was an, an unfortunate kind of loop that it ended up in just making multiple, multiple requests. And me and, and two other technical directors, and we have a decent amount of experience within technical stuff, we looked at this code chain and went, anybody could have made this. Like we, we looked at it and we cannot blame anybody for this specific issue because this could happen to anybody. And it couldn't be QA'd properly because it was an edge case that actually nobody understood could happen in the first place. And unit testing potentially could have covered it a little bit better, but realistically it was, again, it was an edge case that you might not even have realized that you would have written a unit test for in the first place. So it wasn't until it was out and we started seeing these spikes that, that we realized how bad the, the issue actually was. And that is a specific scenario where now that, that we, we know better and, and, and kind of where, where APM tools actually make a big difference is that's the type of thing that we could have had our monitoring kind of after the releases go out and we could have seen quite quickly that that was happening and catch it a lot quicker than, than we actually did at that stage. Because that actually took us about two or three weeks after the, the issue came out before we even realized it, because there was no kind of impact on user experience or anything like that. It was just purely a traffic issue. And so from a monitoring perspective, how do you feel that mobile specifically differs from other types of environments for, yeah, for monitoring? I think there are a couple of different ways. I think one of the main ones is, is kind of mobile applications are run on these these wireless devices in, in many ways. So the experience around kind of delays on requests and all of these kind of things is, is a big difference compared to like building websites. The, the website won't even work if, if the connection isn't there in the first place. So you, you kind of, or most cases, obviously, even the web is moving towards more of persistence world at this stage. But at this stage, like if you don't have an interconnection, it doesn't work. But for us, when we're building mobile applications, we need to cater to and manage and, and understand what happens when the connection fails, when there's no data there. And, and, and again, APM will help us see where those things are happening and, and where things are not kind of going as, as they should. And also on the other side of things, again, apps are generally built as, as more kind of persistent storage solutions, at least the ones that we build. So understanding where we're getting our data from and how much of when we're fetching, when we shouldn't be fetching, what can we store longer, what shouldn't we store longer, what business logic should we have kind of locally, what shouldn't we have. The monitoring of these APM tools allows us to keep track of a lot of these things in a lot more detail and help us make sure that, that we're making the right decisions around all of these things that are quite, at least at this stage, unique to, to mobile applications. But again, even the web is kind of the convergence between web and, and, and app is slowly but surely happening, so we'll probably see similar kind of things that need to be solved on, on all platforms at some stage. Yeah, you raise an interesting point uh, from, from the, the web perspective that you can and you can kind of react a bit quicker. How do you manage that trade-off between, obviously, when you deploy your application, it takes a certain amount of time for that to reach end users. 
mm-hmm. versus being able to react and obviously you're running live streams of the data mm-hmm. and you're kind of a real-time data coming in from that. How do you, do you have kind of strategies or how do you manage that trade-off of like having live data, but then not being able to necessarily react too quickly because of the deployment process? It's always been a massive challenge, and it's also a challenge of communicating those challenges to, to everybody involved, especially clients and stuff, is that applications obviously need to go through an uh, update process. And we build, I haven't said this before, we build, uh, the vast majority of what we do is on native applications. So there are obviously kind of cross-platform and, and other solutions that can kind of have immediate reaction, and you can kind of change things on the fly. But what we build generally is, is on native. So if you don't put things in place, you have to know that every single release, you, and especially if you have a big user base, is every single release might be the last release that anybody has. Because at some point, there will be one or two people that don't update for one reason or another. They might kind of want to save their data or they, they don't have the latest version or whatever it is. So you need to realize that every single release that you make is potentially one that, that everyone will see at some stage. We have added a lot of stuff and tools over, over the years that, that will helps, helps us mitigate against the risks that is. There is everything from like a, a forced update kind of solution, which has to be there in some way. So if you have something that is really broken, then you can actually force people to update. So you have a ball that shows before that forces people to update. So you just have a, a version check essentially when you open up the application that, that prevents people from coming in. That is the kind of the worst case scenario, the last gasp of, of, of making sure that you have that safety. But then we're also building more and more tools that allows us to, to build our products more flexibly. So we're building the abilities to, to control and, and layouts and, and, and displays and, and things, uh, either personalized or kind of fully remotely control these things from our, our kind of content management systems or our, our platform, our backend platforms. Uh, and that allows us to build more, much more flexible products as well. So both from a product perspective, we're building tools to make sure that happens. And also we have learned over many years of doing these things, how to mitigate against the real challenge of, of not being able to do any kind of hot fixes or, or any immediate changes to anything happening. It just means that the, the reliance on testing, monitoring, QA is a lot higher, I would say, in, in the, the app side of things compared to, to web or backends where you can hot fix, you can make changes that you know will kind of go out and are you an advocate then for using things like feature toggles or central config for rolling things out and pushing things to production as quickly as possible or as soon as possible and then gradually rolling out those out for the end user? Definitely. It's something that, that I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, it's not something that we have as much in place as that what we're aiming for at this stage. We do feature toggles and we do have a lot of kind of remote configs and, and all of these kind of things. Our goal within the next year or so is to get to a place where every single thing that we do is fully kind of feature toggled uh, as much as it can be so that we uh, not just from a being able to control and kind of monitor the, the deployment of these, but also if we have multiple people working on the same kind of code base to simplify our kind of continuous deployment and making sure that we have the ability to even things that haven't gone through full testing in QA and all of these things, if it's architected correctly, the code can still go out or some elements of it can still go out into the code and you don't end up with these merge tells essentially at the end of each sprint because you have to wait for everything to be fully done and tested before you can put them all together. So again, that goes closer to the representative kind of production state if you allow things to be kind of merged as early as possible. So you're always testing on something that has everything in it rather than waiting until everything is done and then trying to put it all together, which adds a lot of risk to to the, the, the deployment system. So what do you think the future holds for mobile app development and, and monitoring as well? And it's a, a large question, but do you have any kind of particular areas where you think the technology around development or monitoring is, is likely to go? 
we're seeing more and more that that people are starting to understand the value of of build having a very modular kind of architecture and approach to their their products in, in many ways, and that kind of comes back to the, the feature flagging and, and feature deployment and all of these kind of things. But the importance of of making sure that you can build your product as small bits that are kind of relatively independent from each other becomes more and more important as your products get bigger, as there are more features that you want to add and you want to be able to control. And again, app clips and instant apps and all of these elements all depend on that. I think architecturally, things are much better now than they were many years ago, but I still think I'm seeing a lot of, of places where that is, is accelerating a lot more than than in other areas. So from an app kind of development standpoint, I think that's the case. Again, it's going to be even more interesting when the whole kind of AR side of things comes in and then kind of seeing how you can split products out and what's being displayed and, and what is not being displayed. So I think that is, is one side. And then on the monitoring side of things, it's continuing to be really, really important that everybody has a view of of, of the usage of, of these products that they that people release. So I think there are a lot of, again, machine learning and AI can start kind of suggesting where things can change because honestly i think again the, the machine learning and ai side of things especially in the product world is, is a little bit overblown sometimes because it's it's only as good as the data you can train anything with but anything where you have a lot of data be that kind of personalization or monitoring or all of these things that is actually where machine learning can make a difference because the more data you have the more that that can actually push the boundaries so I think that's an interesting element, and especially if you have a tool that is used by many different products, you can start kind of gathering information and, and, and kind of suggesting things to where kind of things can be improved in many ways. So that is definitely uh, something that I think from a monitoring standpoint can actually help development, not just be a, a tool to, to find things, but also be suggested and, and actually provide that type of information for, for, for everyone. So I think there's a huge amount of opportunity there. I agree, being able to, obviously, a wealth of data, being able to provide these insights around where potential problems are. See, the, the, the caveat to that is to make sure we're not providing false positives and annoying behavior. How have you seen the standard for monitoring um, for mobile specifically change over the, you know, the, your career? I think that the tools and the integration, the simplicity and the, the actual experience of using these these monitoring tools has changed significantly. Like when I started, there were some tools that allowed to do certain of these things, but you have to be very like the integration of them was more or less a nightmare. Uh, getting them into the the, the builds and, and and making sure that they work correctly, you have to be a very senior kind of developer to to to, to make use of it in, in any useful way. And also the quality of, of the frameworks and how they integrate is, 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 has changed quite a bit as well. Like many years ago, I, I remember it was actually for AFL as well. I was down, I was my yearly trip down to Melbourne to kind of talk to our clients. I spent the 10 out of the 14 days I was there heads down on the computer because there was a critical issue in, in one of the builds. And after spending 10 days of tearing, literally tearing the product, the app apart to try to find where the issue was. I found out that it was actually because of a combination of different frameworks. So there was the APM framework, there was a stream quality tracking, and there was an analytics tool, and there were a couple of other ones that were in the same product. And there was a clash between the APM tool and the stream quality monitor, because the stream quality monitor constantly pings the latency and the time of the, the actual video stream itself, which is obviously a lot of requests that are happening when you're watching live streams. And the APM tried to monitor every single request that was happening and the health of that request. So what ended up happening was you could play one video 
and that was fine, but that's created a backlog of requests that were happening. So as soon as you got to video number four or five or six during your same time, it just froze the whole application and it just fell apart at that stage. So those were the type of things that we saw early on and, and kind of the clash between a lot of these products. And that has definitely gotten a lot better and people understand that what is, is good to do and not to do. Ultimately, it was a relatively easy solution in the end because you just need to, to, to kind of whitelist that specific endpoint to make sure that, that that was not tracked. So there was a solution to that problem. But it's that type of stuff and understanding the combination of, of some of these frameworks that is something that has changed quite a bit in addition to, again, the experience of integrating, using, finding this information is definitely is night and day compared to what you Have you had much experience with some of the native monitoring solutions that have come out like this, like Metric Kit and the, the Power and Performance API specifically that have come out from Apple? We use a lot of those kind of uh, as part of our development process. So we don't we, we use the ones that are integrated into the, the, the kind of the development tools that we have to, to kind of track and, and monitor and kind of CPU usage and memory usage and, and kind of leaks and all of these kind of things. That's usually part of our, our process of, of ensuring the quality of what we do. But as soon as things go live, we generally stick to some of the, the other APM tools that, that exist. I think Apple is, is doing a great job when it comes to their kind of privacy elements, but it also makes it a little bit harder sometimes to make use of certain tools that, that they provide as well, because it's not always fully representative of, of the, 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 the kind of full scale of the data that's out there. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, uh, privacy is a, a, a huge important thing at the moment. Obviously, you're tracking what's going on in devices, and so you have to be quite transparent about that and only track the, the relevant information that's required to, you know, to answer questions that users might need to answer. I'm still thinking about the story you told us earlier. Like, I can almost feel the frustration of uh, trying to find a root cause behind an issue like this $200,000 code change. And it really illustrates perfectly why uh, monitoring is and will be a crucial part of mobile development. Definitely. Now, we, we were lucky that we had enough data to track to, to be able to pinpoint relatively quickly. Um, because of kind of graphs and when things came out and all of this kind of stuff. So we, we were lucky in that stage to be able to pinpoint it as quickly as we did. But if we didn't even have that level that we had, then we would have sat on our hands essentially and tried to, to kind of find a needle in the haystack of what is actually causing these, these, these issues. So, um, yeah, within a couple of hours of finding it, we, we had it all fixed and everything. But yeah, it's, it just says how, how important it is to, to keep track of some of these things because it can, can, very, very costly, very quickly if you don't, if you have a fairly big scale problem. Yeah, that's what we found that um, a lot of solutions focus on the capture of problems and, and mm -hmm. showing you who, who is being affected, but not as much on the detail around how that problem occurred. And this is an area that we, we noticed in the early days when working on Dresden, an area that we're really looking to, to add value is to show, you know, this is the problem, here's who it's affecting, but this is how they triggered that potential problem. And you can look at stat traces for crashes and, and understand some correlation between metrics, but being able to see the user went to this particular page, pushed this button, it made a network request and then the app exploded. If you can see that and on which segment of devices it was occurring, then you've, you've narrowed down the size of the haystack when you're trying to find that needle of a bug that's occurring. And um, yeah, these are, these are information that we found that people get that from a, a number of different sources like server logs, screen recording tools, a bunch of APM and user analytics as well. We found there's a lot of people use and it's, it's, it's a lot of work to go and pull all those sources together. So that's yeah, where, that's where we're really looking to 
trying to add that value from the mobile perspective into traces to bring all that information into one location because it's it's all relevant to to each other. So that then you know, when there is a problem, you can say it's happened here because of what this happened, uh, this chain of events that happened before it. Yeah, that's definitely super useful as a developer. Obviously, it's the most frustrating thing or the the hardest part of fixing a bug is replicating it. If you can replicate a bug, it's super easy to fix it. But finding how it happened in the first place is obviously uh, usually the, the, the hardest part of, of, of the whole process. And for us, again, having uh, fairly millions of users out there and, and having something that might, oh, it's only affected 1% of users, but that 1% of users could be hundreds, if not millions of, of, of users uh, as well. And that is a very negative thing. And, and But if it still only happens 1%, the chances that we will be able to fully replicate it is, is quite small. And especially if it's a certain permutation of devices and all of these kind of things. And that is why it's critical for us to be able to find this information as part of, of the, the monitoring that is out there in the first place. Because without that, we we could some we have sometimes spent weeks or even months trying to find or pinpoint a specific issue that only targets a very specific set of, of users, and it becomes especially hard if you if you don't have access to the devices or whatever. And if there are certain parts of, of the world where people have devices that don't exist in other parts of the world, and, and having a very global user base just means that you will see again permutations that you didn't even know existed or were possible. And 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 again. Having, trying to replicate, trying to find, trying to solve those issues is more or less impossible if you don't have ways to, to monitor. Yeah, you're, you're on a kind of an inherently unstable environment, being on a mobile device that's being traveled, um, carried around you know, amongst a, a lot of people. They are all uh, have cell signals as, as well that cause these problems. Exactly. A bunch of other tools they will use, like screen recordings and uh, screenshot capture and things, which are uh, are useful, but as you mentioned in the this world of um, like increased data privacy and awareness around data privacy, that's not a, a great solution anymore or an acceptable solution in a lot of cases. And it's a very expensive solution as well. If you're recording a screen for a long period of time, you tend to have to cut that down to the last five seconds before an issue or something. And it could be a case of because you are on one of these devices and you know someone's turned off Bluetooth and you're reliant on that and there's a bug in that particular part of the application, you're not going to be able to get that because it's going to be outside of the scope of your tracking. So yeah, going to a lower resolution version that you can build up this structural kind of hierarchy of what was going on. And then you can also compare across those hierarchies as well to say this problem occurred for this user and it's occurring for these other users as well. Yeah, definitely. No, and, and, and kind of connect to that whole issue of, of things clashing with each other. The, the whole elements of having a screen recorder that records everything is a, quite an intrusive kind of part of that that actually adds quite a bit of overhead to, to the code itself and that can easily if you have quite advanced products with a lot of bespoke features and all of these kind of things you can easily end up in a situation where you end up having weird, really weird kind of clashes with oh this video kind of recording is clashing with this 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 other element and, and all of these kind of things so it's there are definitely a lot of those things that we we need to keep track of, so we want something that is uh, as, as least amount of intrusion and kind of code that, that is actually put in. Um, so from a monitoring perspective, you, you mentioned having these conflicts between frameworks and you think you had that kind of circle of dependency issue uh, with that network monitoring. How do you feel about integrating these party SDKs into into your apps, obviously your app's quite important to you and it's uh, the exposure by adding third-party code in. What, what friction comes along with that and how and how do you evaluate whether you're going to add in a third-party dependency of, the, of a monitoring nature? 
there are a couple of things that I think about there. One is is kind of the understanding of what the the framework actually does and how it does what it does. Like I'm not looking for a hundred percent transparency because obviously there's some 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 elements of that that I understand needs to, to be hidden away. But if I have an understanding of okay, uh, it swizzles on these requests and then does this kind of thing, uh, the more I can understand how it actually does what it does, the more I can kind of figure out the risk of it clashing with something else that we're doing, be that bespoke or the frameworks and all these elements. So that's one of the first things I look at is, is okay, do I understand what it's doing, how it's doing it? Do I, would I kind of solve it the same way that, that they've done it in, in some way? So I, I can kind of understand the solution because there are unfortunately tools out there that, that do things that certain developers probably shouldn't do from my perspective in terms of kind of swizzling into the, the wrong places and, and kind of taking over things that might work 99% of the time. But if you then have something a little bit more bespoke, then that might clash with, with something else and that can have catastrophic kind of results. So that's the first thing. The second thing is obviously on the data side of things, there is no such thing as a free lunch. So if, if something is, is free in some way, understanding how the data will be used, and especially for a lot of our clients, they need to understand how their data is used from a privacy standpoint, what is collected, what is, is kind of not collected, and how that data is used in some way. So obviously, there, if it's anonymized and, and kind of safe in, in many ways and kind of GDPR compliant, then usually it's usually worth it. But it's still something that we need to be aware of. We can't really be caught out adding stuff that, further down the line is just realize that that data is, is lost or, or kind of shared in ways that it shouldn't be. And then it's also the monitoring side or the, the uh, maintenance of, 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 of it itself going forward. And it's usually one of the first things I ask my, my team when they want to add a new framework or, or tool or some even third party or, or an open source stuff is who's going to maintain it. Like if, if this is something that, that we're going to rely on or something that is going to be core part of our day to day, what happens when um, there's a new version of iOS or there's a new version of, of Android or there's something out there that actually means that we can't compile right now because this dependency is, doesn't work on that version or whatever. Do we have to spend the time of, of pulling it out at that point? Do I have to change something? So that element of, of understanding kind of what happens when this doesn't work anymore, do we have an exit plan more or less that to, to get it out of, of that? And, and the, the more dependent we are on it, the more that becomes a risk that we need to keep track of. So I would probably say those are kind of the three main elements. So it's the, the simplicity of integration and how it integrates and, and how I understand what integrates to know what the risks are in terms of clashes. It is the, the data side of things and the privacy around that. And potentially where the costs come from, or if there are no costs, where the, the data is shared and how it's shared. And then it's the maintenance of, of that going forward as well, is, is kind of how, how much do we believe that this is something that, that will be maintained and kept up to date, and we don't end up in a, a dependency nightmare uh, where we can't kind of get our fixes and updates out because there is a misdependency is, is, is not kept up to date. Sounds like that might have been a, a lesson that you've learned the hard way, maybe more than once, around the yeah, end of life. It, it definitely is, and and it's kind of I've as any developer like there, there are a couple of different types of developers out there. I've always been on the I want to build it myself side of things because of many different reasons, not the least because I learned the most of kind of building it myself rather than anything else. So we usually have a point of thumb rule internally that if it doesn't save us a massive amount of time, we should build it ourselves. But obviously, we don't want to reinvent the wheel either. So if there are industry standards and stuff that is used widely, we can still make use of those. But yeah, that all comes from situations in the past where we use frameworks or we use tools or early on kind of pulling things in that it does 15 different things, but we only needed one piece of it kind of thing. And that's just bringing in a bunch of code and stuff that we don't know. We don't, we haven't written, we haven't built and somebody needs to maintain it. 
And we have made this choice sometimes of going to go, and there's a risk in, in that this open source thing is not going to be kept up to date, but we have taken it on going, okay, if that actually happens, then we will take over. We will maintain it. We will kind of do what we need to, to make use of it if it's something that we want, are going to say that that is going to be a core part of, of our builds. So from that perspective, the, the understanding the dependencies and, and evaluating the risks around them is really, really important. And then we also, the other addition to that is that we have worked with a lot of big organizations who, as soon as anything is either third party or, or licensed in some way, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of process and regulation that things need to go through to be approved. So from that scenario, it actually helps having a lot of stuff built ourselves so that we can work with some of these organizations much more efficiently than if we have a bunch of third party or open source things that they would have to push through their, their procurement or their kind of approval processes. So from that perspective, it's also one that we have to be slightly careful with something. The data side of things, have you noticed any correlations between your app store ranking or your promoter score from your users? You know, the, the, the general score that your users give to you to say how, how well you're doing as an application versus uh, compared to particular performance monitoring metrics. There's definitely a sense like the what I usually call when you get from a product from from good to great, like you can it's relatively easy to build a product that actually does fix the boxes more or less. But to get to a place where the product is actually seen as something that is high quality or great in some way, it very much comes down to a lot of details that don't always get the focus that they should do from my perspective at least. And that is where things such as request speed, what actually happens while things are loading, when things are loading, if they're loading, like small pet peeve stuff that people see. Going into a page and then you leave that page and you forgot, oh, I need to go back and look at that page again. If you then have to do the same load as you did the first time when I was just there, that's a small pet peeve thing. That's a small issue kind of thing. And also when you go to a page and there might not be a clear loading indicator, like the difference between having a blank page and there's nothing there and then something just magically pops up once it's finished compared to something that has a nice loading indicator, nice loading state, and then transitions in nicely to when that data is there. Like all of those things is kind of where you push from being good to a great product. And that to do that right, you have to do the monitoring around the delays and, and the times for requests and what happens for users and stuff to get the sense of how all of these things are fitting together and working. And um, a, 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 yeah, a great product comes down to that level of polish and you can only hit that level of polish by being aware of the, the performance of, of the product itself. There's one question. It's not strictly related, but we ask everyone, uh, which is how would you describe your job to your parents? I'm quite lucky. My dad is, is comes from a, he has a fairly technical background as well. Um, so he kind of understands my, myself, my, my brother are both software developers. So that is quite natural, but I, I would probably say that my job is to build digital products, mainly applications for uh, sports fans. This is kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis. These days, it's shifted kind of a little bit away from the, the actual the building aspect of it to defining and, and kind of strategizing around and, and supporting our clients with what they are trying to achieve and, and how they can make use of our internal kind of tools and stuff that we build to, to make that easier as well. So it's very much around one foot in the, the, the building of things and one foot in the understanding of, of fans and, and, and sports and, and all of these elements. So maybe not a, a fully clear answer, but oh yeah, it's, that's probably how I would describe it. Oh, that sounds like you have an easy job. That's good. Yeah, some days maybe it's it's easy and some days it's it's not, but all, every day is, is interesting at least, which is why I, I, I very much enjoy what I do. 
Oh no, I mean, I mean, describing to your parents the job itself. <laughs> yeah. So that's all the time we had for today. Erasmus, thank you so much again for joining us and sharing these kind of behind the scenes stories and insights. It was a really interesting conversation. You can find out more about what Erasmus and his team does on their website, postlife.com. And you'll also find more details in the show notes. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.